Hello, everyone, uh, and welcome to the fourth episode of Polity Researchers' podcast, The Polling Station. My name is Ernie Pikopoulos, CEO of Polity, and I will once again be your host today. Uh, for those of you new to the podcast, uh, what we usually try to do is create a little more re relaxed mood by asking guests to bring their favorite coffee to the podcast. But since today we have a return guest, I didn't want to do that. It's the, you know been there, done that. So we're going to do it a little differently. We're asking our guest to bring his favorite hard beverage. So to start it off, I have to do the same, of course. So to start off, I just want to show you I'm bringing uh, Jack Daniels on the rocks with three ice cubes, which is how Frank Sinatra insisted upon drinking. Okay, so I'm hewing to his his line. Um, and for those of you watching on video, you'll see the very stylish University of Maryland uh, Terrapin logo on there. Um, for those of you just listening on audio, I'm, I'm sorry, because it was really quite nice. Uh, and soon we're going to find out what our guest is drinking. So this is exciting. Let's move on. Our topic today is one that's been in the news pretty consistently over the last month or so, and that's Afghanistan. And specifically, we're gonna be discussing the future of Afghanistan. And our guest today is about as perfectly qualified to discuss these issues as anyone I know. It is fellow pollster, David Williams. And Dave is president of Williams and Associates, a polling firm based in Salem, Massachusetts. And between 2004 and 2010, uh, Dave ran a total of six national surveys and three subnational surveys in Afghanistan. And these included a pre-election survey in 2004, as well as, and this really blows me away, an exit poll in Afghanistan on election day of 2004. And that was the first ever exit poll in that country's history. And his organization that day spoke to 17,000 Afghan voters as they left the polls. And Davis worked under a USAID cooperative agreement and he's carried out extensive post-election consulting also uh, with the likes of uh, former Afghan President Hamid Karzai. And those of you who've been following the events over there know that the international airport in Kabul is named after Hamid Karzai, or at least it was. We'll have to ask Dave if it still is in the post-Taliban uh, period. But he's also consulted with several other presidential candidates, including the last guy to hold office, Ashraf Ash, Ash, Ash Ghani, sorry for mispronouncing that. Altogether, Dave completed nearly 34,000 interviews over seven years of polling in Afghan politics. So I think you can see he's pretty much the perfect person to talk to about these issues. So welcome, Dave Williams, my friend. Hey, good to be yeah. here, Ernie. First off, what kind of stuff are you, hard stuff are you bringing to the podcast? Well, we're going to be really relaxed uh, <laughs> in, this, uh, in this episode. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a gin drinker. And, uh, you know, nor so normally it's a martinis or, or gin and tonics, which I uh, claim I really, I do a lot of work in Africa. So it's really medicinal for me to drink <laughs> a gin and tonic because the quinine and malaria. Yeah. But my brother, uh, years ago, he knows I'm a gin, uh, gin drinker. Brought, I was watching his dog and he was in New Hampshire and he brought me back this sipping gin. Sipping. It's, a, it's a slightly amber color, as you can see. And it's uh, uh, distilled by uh, Tamworth Distillery up in, um, up in Tamworth, New Hampshire. 
uh, and apiary gin, they call it. It's a, it's a garden gin distilled from grain with local honey and botanicals. So that's what gives it its, its lovely golden color. I'm drinking it straight. So cheers to you, Ernie. Yes. Cheers, Dave. Same here. Very good. Nice choice. I like it. Thank you. Local, a local concoction. Local, a local brew. Yes. All right. Enough of this frivolity. Let's uh, get right to the first topic here. And that's domestic U.S. reaction to what went on in, in the Afghan situation. You and I, of course, have done a lot of work in U.S. public opinion. So it, it interests me. I'm sure it interests you, too. And, you know, as you know, most U.S. polls have recently shown that while majority support the idea, the generic idea of leaving Afghanistan after 20 years of war, uh, there are strong majorities that also feel that the Biden administration seriously mishandled the way we left Afghanistan. And in particular, you know, leaving Americans and Afghan allies behind and potentially, and I stress potentially, uh, creating fertile ground for new terrorist activity in, in the region. So I'm curious to know how you felt about all these kind of U.S. domestic attitudes in light of what you have experienced and you know about the situation after all these years. Yeah, well, you know, Afghanistan is a very unusual uh, spot because, um, you know, I started doing this work um, in Central and Eastern Europe as the fall of communism uh, happened in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, the U.S. government um, thought it would be wise, and it was wise, since very few of these countries like Bulgaria, uh, Czechoslovakia, it's broken into two now. Um, any one of the countries, uh, Ukraine, uh, Latvia, any of the Baltic countries, they, they really did not know how to operate in a democratic environment. And so the power structure that existed before the fall of communism basically took over after the fall of communism. Mm -hmm. So you had the former communists who were, who were uh, essentially uh, turned into social democrats, but still pretty hardline communists. Um, so we start uh, the U.S. government started doing work there to train and show these people how to work in a modern democracy in a, in a political campaign, and it had a great deal of success. Mm -hmm. um, I think if you look at what has happened in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, you can see they're pretty much very, some are a little less stable than others, but they're pretty much stable democracies now where they have a very vibrant back and forth between center right and center left, um, and they've kind of matured uh, in their democratic function. Unfortunately, as, as the successes piled up in Eastern Europe, it kind, of, it kind of moved more to the East. So we've done work in Lebanon and, and uh, West Bank and Gaza uh, and in Pakistan and in Afghanistan in particular, trying to do the same, the same basic thing. And so after 9-11, when the military moved in, um, a very short period of time, they deposed the Taliban. Uh, and so you had all these folks like me moving in, these sort of, uh, uh, I don't want to say democracy experts, but these people who kind of work through how, how you deal in political campaigns. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, I think clearly uh, the government, our government, the Western governments, because we had partners there, tried to impose our sort of vision on what a democratic country should look like. And it really did just did not fit. And so this it's the whole nation building exercise. In some right. places it's good, in other places it just didn't work. And it clearly did not work here. So I think that, you know, 
and a number of people have said this, that what should have happened is after the war had been won, you, you send some folks in uh, to help stabilize the economy, to help, uh, you know, uh, rebuild, uh, you know, uh, schools and highways and infrastructure, all that stuff, and then and then get out. And I think that's really what, what should have happened. So I, I think the American public is 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 right on the money with we should have gotten out. We should have gotten out a long time ago. And the fact that uh, so that the the getting out part of it, I think, is is was was pretty well uh, understood and respected. It's the, the way they got out. that was just absolutely tragic. And, uh, you know, it, it just, uh, you know, I don't really need to speak too much about it because we saw what happened on television. You saw what happened with the explosion that killed 13 American uh, American Armed Forces people and literally hundreds of, of uh, Afghans. Um, it was just a tremendously bungled uh, exit. And I've flown in and out of that airport. It's it's not an easy airport to get out of. And so you can kind of understand it, you know, again, that their rationale was we wanted to use uh, Karzai Airport because it's, it's close to, it's actually close to town. Yep. as opposed to going out to Bagram, which is about 40 miles, I think, uh, outside of town, very, would be very difficult to get to. But uh, it's not like it was really easy getting to Hamid Karzai International Airport either. So, mm. you know, don't really know how well that stands up. Yeah. Yeah, there was some criticism, I remember, that um, also if, if they had kept Bagram open, at least there would have been an alternative for thousands of Afghans who weren't necessarily able to travel to Kabul, who are also our allies and interpreters and so forth, who might've been able to get into a somewhat fortified Bagram air base by us, you know, assuming yeah. it's, I don't know, a thousand or so troops there. I mean, we had people in every major, uh, you know, uh, uh, city in, in Afghanistan. So yeah, I mean, and some people, it, you know, they took the Northern route out from, uh, from, uh, from a few places up through uh, Tajikistan and, uh, and the, the land routes out uh, because it was, uh, it was easier. But yeah, Bagram would have been a much, it was e more easily defendable. Yeah. Um, and uh, like I said, the decision was made not to go uh, through uh, the streets of, uh, of Kabul to actually get people and bring them in, which again, I think was just, uh, a tremendous mistake. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you would you would kind of sort of agree with some of the critics who say we shouldn't have tried to create a mini USA in Afghanistan. And you know, you made reference to the nation, you know, the whole nation building idea. And is it because just because it it's just culturally out of place in Afghanistan uh, because of the way you know, the, the society developed or are there other reasons why, you know, we, we probably should have just taken care of bin Laden and, uh, and Al-Qaeda and, and gone home? Yeah, well, you know, they actually have a very, a very interesting democratic form there. Um, a lot of big decisions are made by this thing called the Loya Jirga, which is yeah. basically, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a town it's almost a town meeting kind of thing except not everybody can get in only only upper level chieftains so on and so forth but they get together they debate they discuss things and they come up with a policy so the the basic framework is there the one thing that's missing and i think it's the thing thing that's missing in a lot of countries like afghanistan and pakistan and bangladesh 
and maybe a number of places in sub-Saharan Africa is that the, you know, it, it's not that people aren't smart enough, it's just that they're, they, they, there's a tremendous lack of education uh, involved in order for people to sort of make these, these uh, you know, reasoned determinations on who they want to vote for. So people are easily swayed because they're, I, I hate using the word, but it really is ignorance. It's not that they're, that yeah. they don't have the capability. They just don't, they've never been given the opportunity to learn. Right. You know, most people in Afghanistan uh, cannot, cannot read or write, um, you know, and the, the level that they learn to read and write is learning the Quran. And so that is sort of the basis of everything. So I think if there was a, if, you know, the educational element, I think that's probably the real tragedy for us leaving is that all the work that we've done building schools, educating, uh, you know, women and, and girls in particular is probably down the drain. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think, I think most Americans don't realize that, there, I don't know, what is it like 40, 35, 40 million people in Afghanistan. It's a yeah. fairly large and very diverse based on all the tribal groups, right? The Pashtuns and the, and whatever. I mean, I don't know all of you, but I'm sure you do, but it's, it's a pretty diverse. And as you say, generally uneducated um, populace. And it goes back to what you said earlier. I think it may have been smarter for us to build a real infrastructure based on education, perhaps, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that have allowed for a society, you know, to develop in a way that we would prefer. Yeah. Or we I would... mean, we like, we like throwing money at things. For yeah. us, it's, you know, okay, we'll do, we'll do this. And, and some of it is, is, from my perspective, very misguided in terms of what we're willing to pay for. Yeah. Uh, and, and, it just it just was not a good a good fit in Afghanistan and not particularly a good fit in a lot of places. Tunisia, for example, just to get off subject, is one where it could actually work really well because they have a very sort of Western mindset in Tunisia, mainly because they've been dominated by the Italians and the French. Mm -hmm. And so they have that they've been given that or they've been again, I don't want to say I don't want to look no, like I, a colonialist but uh, right, right, you know, right. they've been the opportunity to to uh to educate their populace has been provided uh from other folks and they've sort of internalized that they've realized that knowing that if you have a, a, a an educated population is they have a tendency to make really good decisions yeah you know jumping ahead a little bit and i'm just going to make one short comment on it and then we can get back to it you know, in the for the for the exit poll, we were told, oh, you can't do an exit poll here. People, you can't do any kind of polling here because people will be too afraid to tell you what they really think. Right. And what we found is, and what we found in almost every country that we've worked in, where people, and this is almost every country that we've worked in, where where they said you can't do polling here, we found that exactly the opposite is what happens. People, they've never been asked. They're 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 the the opinions want to come flowing out of. And we didn't do this in Afghanistan, but we did an exit poll in Lebanon where we actually had to set up two different ballot boxes. One was the real one and one was a dummy one mm. because so many people coming out said, I want to do that. I want to do that. It was screwing up our skip pattern. <laughs> so we had to have one. Okay, these are the real ones. And then someone who wanted to fill it out, we put it in the other box. Okay, yeah, you put yours in that box over there, which we didn't, we never, we never made as part because it, you know, it would mess up the sample. And we found the same thing in Afghanistan. I, I, I have uh, pictures that I, I don't want to show because 
I don't want to get anybody into any trouble. And uh, maybe we should wait to hold off on this until we get to the exit poll uh, section, yeah. but okay. um, I'll just circle back to that one when we get there. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I like what you're saying about the, you know, the, the educational infrastructure, which can create the building blocks to a civil society, right? I mean, it's, you can't just impose this generic template on people without there being, you know, the root the roots to kind of take hold so that it's meaningful at all. I think that might've been what happened, you know, cause it, it crumbled so quickly that the foundation really wasn't there to, to hold on. And that's, I guess, leads to my next question, which is the political structure in Afghanistan. Was it really able to withstand the, the rigors of a struggling democracy? I and mean, you were there at the, at the creation really, you know, of a nation democracy that was trying to take hold over there. And, you know, like, for example, are the political parties, are they meaningful in the sense that we know them, or are they just kind of power centers for the various tribal elites and, you know, chieftains and so forth? It's the latter and not yeah. the former. <laughs> you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, I, I'm always amused that uh, when Karzai got in, uh, after he was elected president, he, he wanted to, to set up these sort of partisan uh, parties to different entities to kind of find it out. And the uh, United States, well, the Western governments uh, argued against actually doing that because they thought it would create even more division within within the populace. Mm. And it's, uh, I'm always reminded that Jefferson hated political parties and sure. argued against them. But yeah. one of the first things he did was create one. Yeah. <laughs> so right. it was it was almost the same. It was almost the same thing because you're afraid of this fractionalism, but there's fractionalism there anyway. You know, there, right. there's always, there, there, you know, among the three politicians that I had a fair amount of contact with, uh, and these are political figures, not, not administrators within the government who I also had a fair amount of contact with. Uh, Karzai, who basically spent most of his time and, and most of the power structure within Af Afghanistan uh, basically spent most of their uh, lives in the United States uh, mm -hmm. or in Western Europe, usually Britain, because that was the power structure that was there that they remember. But almost all of them, I think Hamid Karzai, owned, his family owns restaurants uh, in Washington, D.C. and Chicago. <laughs> we dealt with ministers, uh, you know, the uh, very high up in the in the ministerial side who are cab drivers in Washington, D.C. You know, they, they came here just trying to get anything that they could get. Yep. And then when it opened up, they moved back and, and wanted to reestablish themselves. Um, the, the, the big problem is, is that uh, the, the feeling is, is that you cannot have a president of the country in, in an election who is not a Pashtun. Mm -hmm. So Karzai's Pashtun, uh, uh, Ashraf Ghani's uh, Pashtun, and uh, the vice president, Abdullah Abdullah, is actually Hazara. And it, quite remarkable that he's gotten as far as he's gotten uh, from from coming from that background, because that's yeah. not a terribly good background in, in Afghanistan. And so they were actually kind of moving in kind of a very good direction. I, you know, I have a great deal of admiration for Karzai, not the, you know, nicest guy in the world, but he wasn't, I think his, his heart was in the right place. And I think he, he tried to do what was good for his country. And in fact, Karzai is actually still in Afghanistan right now. No kidding. Wow. Yeah, he's, he's there. Uh, Ashraf Ghani fled. 
Which, I saw that with lots of money, right? With a lot of money, which I, I do not have a lot of respect for Ashraf Ghani. Um, and Abdullah Abdullah has, has stayed there as well. So Karzai and Abdullah Abdullah are actually trying to uh, get the Taliban to uh, moderate some of their views and maybe bring things along. I'm not sure they're going to have a whole lot of luck. But the very fact that Karzai is still there, I think, is is one of the real positive takeaways, because I do think he he is a he's a patriot uh, for Afghanistan and would, mm -hmm. would love to see his country kind of go back to the way it was before the Soviet invasion, which was, yeah. you know, everybody went to Afghanistan. You know, I mean, Afghanistan was a party town uh, before, you know, right before, uh, let's see, 19... Sometime in 1978, I think that the right. 76 or 78 that the that the Russians invaded. There had been some troubles about five years before that, which is why they moved in. But in that previous time, it was a, it was a happening place. I mean, it, you know, it was crazy. Yeah, because there was a, as if I remember my history right, there was a, a monarchy that was then supplanted by an actual republic, right? Yes, correct. And yeah, and that was the time when before the Russians invaded, of course. But. Yeah, um, I mean, you can go on YouTube and see videos of uh, you know guys dancing discotheques in, uh, yeah. in 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 Kabul. It was it was crazy. Yeah, and they have places, you know, they've got weird places. They've got uh, Chicken Street and Flower Street. Those are two sort of big market streets. You cannot buy any chickens on Chicken Street. <laughs> I believe you can actually buy chickens on Market on Flower Street. But yeah. I'm not sure you can buy flowers on Flower Street. So, but everybody mm. used to hang out on Chicken Street, and there were hotels and hostels there. And mm. German tourists were crazy. It was like the 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 Thailand of the uh, mm. of the uh, late '60s. You know, mm. everybody because it was cheap to live there. There was a vibrant nightlife. It was a. It really was not a bad place at all. Huh. Interesting. You you uh, you brought up Ghani, and I apologize for butchering his first name, which I won't try to do again. I mean, you figure a guy with a name like Pycopolis would not butcher other people's names. But anyway, it leads me to the issue of corruption, um, which, of course, has gotten a lot of play in this whole run up to the collapse of the government and before that even. But in my mind, I usually treat all that stuff with a grain of salt because pretty much every developing country has corruption, right? To one degree or mm -hmm. another, you, you're an expert at that too. Yeah. Um, and not, not that you're involved in the corruption, but you're an expert at seeing it in other countries. Not that I would admit to anyway. Yeah, right. Uh, and of course, it's a staple of a lot of developed countries too, let's face it, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of downplay that a little bit in terms of it being an important factor in how things come out. But having said that, I know Ghani fled with millions, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I'm curious to know what, what you think the impact in general of mm -hmm. corruption was on the ultimate fate of the government, of yeah. how quickly it did fall. I mean, it was yeah. ridiculous how quickly it fell, right? Well, there, there are always two levels of corruption in any country. There's the massive, large-scale corruption that happens at, uh, at, at a very high level which happens everywhere, happens here in the United States, you know, you, you can't get away from it. Um, it just so happens that it happened with a, a, a great deal of frequency in Afghanistan. Um, 
because there was just so much money going around and there's very little, uh, you know, there was some oversight, but not a whole lot of oversight on how the money was spent and who actually got the money and where did the money, you know, end up. Um, but it happens in, in, it happens in a lot of places. Um, the second level is the, is the everyday low level version of corruption that you see. And I just heard something about this on the news, which I had not really thought of before. Um, that, uh, you know, you have to, if you get, you get, you get to a checkpoint, you have to give the policemen that are standing there, the armor guys there, a little bit of money just to get through the checkpoint unmolested. If you go to the doctor, you have to, you want your prescription filled, you have to give them a little bit of money. Um, if you, uh, it, you know, you go to the pharmacist, it's the same thing. Uh, teachers in schools, you have to give them a little bit of extra so they release your grades. Um, you know, it's that kind of corruption, that everyday low level corruption that really, uh, really drives people just absolutely crazy mm -hmm. um, because they have a tendency to understand that, that large scale corruption is going to happen anyway. You know, yep. the rich are always going to get richer. They're always going to be able to take advantage of whatever it is that uh, any rule changes that are made, they're going to find some way around them. But if you're if you're living practically hand to mouth and you got to keep doling out money every time you you know need to do something um that's what really ruins a lot of countries and this is what we found in central and eastern europe uh with a fall of communism was rife with this kind of stuff because they didn't pay people they didn't pay doctors they didn't pay policemen they didn't pay educators uh, a, a decent uh, living wage. And so these people actually had to go out and find some way to make a little extra money so that they could do what they needed to do. Yeah. And I, I think that's what you saw uh, to, a, to a large degree in Afghanistan. And so we've seen it in a couple of places. And again, I, I read the story, I'm not sure what it was, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, that one of the things that the Taliban has done is that they sort of eliminated this, uh, this bakshish, it's the, the, the payment of, of bribes at, at low level to low level officials to, mm -hmm. to do their jobs. So mm -hmm. people are happy with that. We saw the same thing in, in, uh, in the Palestinian territories. You, know, you want to talk about people who have enriched themselves. Mm -hmm. um, Yasser Arafat uh, walked away with hundreds of millions of dollars uh he's got this unbelievable compound in uh in uh in uh, the west bank uh in ramallah uh he's got ha he had houses in paris uh you know, i mean just just absolutely phenomenal and and one of the reasons why the country is now split between power structures there so you've got you've got the plo running uh the the, the west bank and you've got hamas running um uh, Gaza, basically, is because uh, Hamas was was offering healthcare services to people. You say, yeah. "Come on in, we got a, we got a little clinic that you can come in. You don't have to pay anything. We'll take care of you." And so the Taliban has kind of mimicked that, or they're doing it all on their own. I don't I don't think they have any you know close contacts with uh, with Hamas or anything, but they they've understand that. So there is that one positive element, and one always hopes. I think that. You know, maybe, and I don't believe that this is ever going to happen, but it's a hope that kind of sits in your heart that the Taliban is going to learn from what happened the last time and yeah. moderate their views to some degree uh, to be a to be a little bit more liberal in their thinking. Yeah, yeah. I, I, well, we obviously, yeah, we all hope that's the case. Uh, the initial indications aren't that 
promising, unfortunately. Not looking that good. No, the hangings and the beheadings and whatever. Um, I, I'm curious, now, now, you know, obviously you were acting, as well as being a pollster, you were in a sense a political consultant too to some of these Afghan politicians. And, you know, I've only advised US politicians and found it extremely frustrating, as you know, <laughs> over time. Uh -huh. They yep. don't always listen to advice. Um, I'm curious, did Afghan candidates, were they more likely to listen to your advice than U.S. Yeah. candidates or other? Well, it, yeah, it, it depends on who you're, it depends on who you're talking to. You know, there's a, let's say, uh, the, the, I always butcher this line from the Bible, which is one thing I think we suffer from is that the uh, prophet is reviled in his home, in his homeland. Oh, yeah. So, you know, because everybody knows you, how could you know what you're talking about? I know who you are. When you go into a country, you have to get through a little bit of the of the skepticism. So they don't think they first of all, they think you can't do that here. You know, you can't you're you know, who are you coming in here? Yeah. You know, you can't talk to people. They won't tell you anything. It's a very tribal organization, you know, very tribal country. You can't get in there. And once you show them that you can do that, all of a sudden they perk up a little bit. They say, OK, I can see how I can use this. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and to, to my to my benefit. And for in Afghanistan, the benefit was not so much uh, the internal audience, it was the external audience. It was being able to communicate with the Americans, with the British, with the French, with the coalition that, okay, I understand what's going on here. I can, I can deal with this. We understand what the problems are. We have to focus on these particular issues. I think the benefit, that's where they saw, that's where they primarily saw the benefit. Yeah. And for a lot of folks, uh, you know, particularly in the, you know, I, my work is split between doing this sort of governmental uh, kind of work for USAID or the State Department, uh, and then doing the private consulting with, uh, which is mostly what I'm doing in Sub-Saharan Africa, is that in, in many cases, uh, the folks where they're not paying for something, so they're getting it free from the United States government, they have a tendency not to listen. They, they <laughs> listen to you, but they don't act on it. Yeah. They're there just so they can say, okay, we listen to your guy. Now, this is what we need in order to move ahead from the US government or for some, or from you know the, the European parliament or whatever. We listen to your folks. We understand what we're doing. It's just that for their benefit, they very rarely, I think, take, uh, take, the, uh, take the advice. Well, you know, um, this this dynamic that you're referring to, I think, you know, we might call it the Tip O'Neill dynamic that you know, all politics is local, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but we saw this, I mean, when you and I worked together on, on projects, even non-political projects, if you went into an area of the country, the United States, say, and wanted to do a survey on an electric utility, the people you were consulting with would always say, oh, you know, you don't really know the lay of the land here. You don't really understand the issues. This isn't going to work. Right. No matter what the issue was, there was always exactly. kind of a local <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that I'm sure is the same dynamic that you saw in yeah. Afghanistan and elsewhere. Right. And you get it from the from the uh, from the power structure in the U.S. government, too. You yeah. go into, you know, the I go in for presentations in various different countries and I'd always get pushed back from the American, <laughs> you know, who was who was the he was the, you know, deputy ambassador. Um, but he was in charge of the political structure there. They'd always give you pushback. Oh, no, 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 no. You're, yeah, you can't, you, you know. Yeah. And it's like, and sometimes they're right, but most times they're wrong because they're, the, and, and this is the wonderful thing about bringing someone in from outside. And it's the thing that people, 
I don't want to say despise me, but I've had, I've had clients who, when I walk in the door, they go, Oh, great. Dave's here. He's going to tell me I'm an asshole, you know, and uh, people don't like me, which is generally what my job is. I go in there and I say, listen, I'm not here to blow smoke. Right. I'm here to tell you what you need the to know. Truth. And it's the hard, the truth. hard truth. And, yeah. it, and it, it, sometimes it's nice. Most times it ain't pretty, but you know, you, you have to know where people are on each particular issue, how they feel about you, how, you know, whether they think you're a, a good person or a bad person, you know, you, you, you need to know this, right? Because you're not getting it from anybody else. You're not getting it from the people who are sitting there saying, yeah, you're great. You're great. You know, you're wonderful. Yep. Uh, you know, so uh, again, it takes a, a little bit, but I've always, I've always said, uh, again, this may be inappropriate. You may want to take it out, but I've always I'm said, particularly, anything, I'm not editing anything, mostly because I don't know how to do it. <laughs> so feel free. I've, I've always said that when you go into a place where they don't, there's not this tradition of the, the polling aspect. So in, you know, I did this in, in uh, Zambia many years ago. You go in, you start showing them what they can do with you. It's like heroin. <laughs> they, get, they get one little taste. Yeah. And then they just they want to know, OK, when can you do this again? When can we yeah. do this again? When can we do this again? Because it's it's information that they've never gotten. Mm -hmm. And when they see that it is and it, this is always the phrase that has stuck with me. And I'm not sure who came up with this phrase, whether it was Patrick, whether it was John Gorman or whether it was Gene Picorni. But the information that you give them has to be actionable. You know, it, this is something that you can do. You can take an action on this and you can make whatever it is that you're doing better or you can ignore it and it's just going to get worse. Sounds so like, sounds like Gene Picorni to me. I think I think that word actionable was a Picorni word, but yeah. uh, it definitely yeah. wasn't a Murphy word. That much no. I know. <laughs> All right, let's get to it before we, I don't want to run out of time with you. Yeah. Because we advertise this podcast as the future of Afghanistan. And I think we should yes. deliver on this, Dave. So I think we should uh, talk about what do you see based on your experience as the realistic future for the Afghan people, all of the considerations thrown in and all you've you know, garnered from your experience with, with public opinion there. Yeah, and, I'm not. And also I'm just not, as a corollary, what do you think about the possibility of a future US military presence if things really get out of hand? Um, I'm not optimistic about uh, what's going to happen with the folks there. Um, you know that the the Afghans are a incredibly pragmatic people. That's how they exist. Um, you know they've been they've been on the Silk Road for years. They're uh, you know again I don't want to use any words that are derogatory, but they they've seen their they've seen their opportunities and they took them mm. as uh, as they <laughs> used to say in Tammany Hall. Um, because they have to. There's not. There's not a whole. Actually, there is a whole lot there, which is the the frightening thing about it. Afghanistan is loaded with natural resources. Oh, no. uh, most uh, importantly, oil, natural gas, right? A little bit of oil, natural gas, but mostly rare earth minerals. Right. Uh, they've got a lot of iron there. Um, when you fly over, you can see the mountains are are you know they're, they're, they're red tinged because of all the iron that's in there. And the, the Chinese are, and this is the thing that has always, always really made me angry, um, is that we, the United States, the Western Alliance, uh, have spent our blood and treasure trying to pacify this country 
um, to the benefit of the Chinese. Basically, the Chinese have moved in and they're they're going to take as much out of there as they as they possibly can. Mm -hmm. And so it may have a tendency to stabilize things. Uh, but, you know, I, the Chinese presence in any country is usually not particularly good. Um, it creates a, a, a whole host of, of other problems. Um, but again, the Chinese have never run into the Afghans before. So, yeah. so I, I don't know how that is going to work for all of them. But the Chinese have a lot of money and they'll spread the money around. And, um, you know, they'll be able to, particularly those rare earth minerals, which are, which are very important for uh, particularly lithium batteries that require oh, right. a lot of rare earth stuff. So if we're moving away from uh, the use of petrochemicals into the use of batteries, those rare earth minerals are much more important than any of the other stuff that's over there. Yeah, it'll uh, be, and there's a lot of it. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if the Chinese become the fourth empire to get bogged down in Afghanistan, right? My sense is they, the Chinese are, are pretty smart about how they get in. Their footprint is very small and it's mostly, it's mostly involves money. Um, they will come in and they'll build you stuff and they'll do it on a, you know, on the, you know, they'll do it for free. Uh, Chinese are all over Africa, mostly in copper rich countries because they want the copper mines. Uh, so they'll come in and say, hey, you need a new road build? build we'll, we'll build the road for you. They don't hire local people. They import Chinese slave labor to do it. So it's not really costing them anything. Yep. Um, so it will be interesting to see if they are if they do get dragged into the mire. But it, like I said, their footprint is usually pretty small. Mm -hmm. And unless they unless they really try to flex, you know, we like to go in and, and really flex our muscles. Uh, the Chinese are, are they're much more coy about it. They do it in a, on a on a much deeper level than we even yeah, think of. And they're preoccupied saber rattling with Taiwan right now, anyway, right? Exactly. Yep. For the time yep. being. So I want to move to uh, another topic, which is which really mystifies me is how the heck you pull this off in Afghanistan. Not just the traditional polling. But particularly the exit polling, because yeah. you know, I've done exit, as you know, I've done exit polling yeah. in the United States exclusively. Yeah. But even that is so unbelievably complicated and difficult and needs the expertise of someone like your lovely wife, Sharon, who exactly she not involved. Uh, I would have looked pretty was, stupid on TV. So how the heck did a you little do bit. it? Well, it, it worked out so well that Warren Matofsky actually uh, sent me uh, sent me an email saying, can we can we talk about how you did this here? And unfortunately, before I could get back to him, he passed away. So oh, yeah, I yeah. never really got to talk to Warren about it. But we uh, and I I keep some things secret from Sharon because I don't think she would have approved of the way that we did the sample. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was it was uh, we it would it was rather complex because I actually started talking about doing the exit poll uh, probably two years before um, with some folks uh, who came in from, uh, they were an NGO, at, they weren't an NGO, they were a, a company that actually did, uh, they were a media company that came over to, um, I was in Pakistan and we were talking about it. And this is, if you wanna know the Afghan mindset, this conversation will set it for you. So they asked me to talk to these guys, the guys that I was working for asked me to talk to these guys because they couldn't get a straight answer on what it would cost to do. So they said, can you just, we'll have this dinner meeting, outline what it is you wanna do and then get a, get a number from them. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. I said, sure. So we went through the thing, you know, we're going to do this. We want to do this, do the whole process. Uh, so how much do you think that would cost? And their response always was, well, how much money do you have? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that was essentially the way it was. It'll cost whatever you want to spend on it, you know? So, so we moved from them to doing this um, NGO that didn't work out. So we ended up going right back to the other guys. And we set it up pretty much the same way that, uh, that we would have set it up here in the, in, the, uh, in the United States if we were doing an exit poll. So we had, we broke things down into little spoke um, areas. So we had a you know, certain number of people in each of these communities that were within driving distance of a, of a, of a supervisor who could go in, drive around, collect all of the interviews that had been completed, go sit down with a satellite phone, call into a location and just enter the numbers in and then they would, they would be tallied. Um, didn't work out quite as elegantly as we had planned it, because uh, it actually took us probably five days to actually get all of the, all mm. of the information in. Um, but we did get most of, the, most of the stuff that we got mm. on the first night came in from Kabul, and we, we could have predicted uh, from the 10 o'clock on. So we set it up, you know, as we normally do again, I, I'm speaking a little shorthand here yeah, yeah, because I know you know how to do it, but other people who are watching this may not know how to do it. Right. We had, we set up three call-in periods. Mm -hmm. So around 10 o'clock, around two o'clock in the afternoon. And then when the polls closed and um, we could have, we could have made the prediction basically the 10 o'clock call that we got mainly from Kabul, probably 60 to 65% of the interviews that we had were in Kabul. And that was the easiest one to get because people could actually drive them in and we had people punching them, uh, uh, you know, keep punching the, uh, the results in. Um, and of course, Kabul's the, the main city. So most of the interviews would have been done there anyway. Right. The, the real tricky part was the, was the sample. And because uh, we've never, never had an election there before. So, you know, normally, as you know, we like looking at, at bellwether kind of precincts as our, as our targets to do the interviewing in. Well, we didn't have any bellwether precincts because they had ne never had an election, so a real election. So we, um, each of the voting stations, they were equally divided. So they had the same, every polling station had the same number of uh, voters as every other polling station in the country. Hmm. So we could easily do just a skip pattern through and we knew we had, okay, we're going to get bing, 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 bing going through. Problem was, so essentially that's what we did. We had a list of, a list of all of the, I forget how many of us, 3,000 polling stations. We knew we wanted to get X number of interviews out of each polling station. So we needed, we know we needed X number of polling stations. So we just did a skip pattern through the list. And then we sat down, me and this other chap uh, who I was working with, uh, who worked for this, uh, this NGO called the International Republican Institute. They were actually the people who were funding this operation. I was over there with this guy and, and another American. And uh, we sat down on a map and we put pins in each of the locations that we had chosen. And then we looked at it and we said, okay, the only way to get here is by donkey. So we know we can't get someone to drive up there. So we would look at the characteristics of that location and, and move it, which is why I can't tell Sharon about it. We would basically yeah. 
<laughs> instead of objectively choosing it, we would subjectively move it to another location that was closer to a central area, but one that basically had the same, um, you know, yeah. ethnic makeup as the as the area that that we had picked. Uh, and so it took us, I think, four days to actually create the sample. Literally, we were doing up all night with pins and okay, we can't do that one. We're going to move it here, and then we'd look and we say, okay, that doesn't work in terms of how to get someone there. They get the, the driving just doesn't work, so we're going to have to move it someplace else. And uh, that's basically how we did it. Um, and then we, uh, so we, we, it wasn't the best sample ever, but it, it worked out to be the we compensated for the subjectivity in the sample by just overwhelming numbers of interviews that we had done. Well, you know, frankly, that was the modus operandi in a lot of our polling here in the United States was do as many interviews as possible. And the theory of large numbers would come into play. And that's right. Much better that you'd hit it on target. Yeah. It uh, should regress back to the mean. So. Yes. But um, I'm, pre I'm presuming that you didn't have enough data to go on new center five Kabul at 11 o'clock to project the winner. No, but we did see Hamid Karzai that night. So, um, yeah, so, <laughs> and it was funny because uh, we were there, actually, this was the night before we did it. So, uh, but uh, we were, we were there in the presidential palace grounds. I actually had to, it's a funny story that would take too long to do, but I had to break into the room of the, the guest house that I was I was staying at because the gates were locked and no one was answering it. I needed my laptop because wow. we didn't know we were going to meet him. So I had to go into it. And I'm, I'm like, getting, I'm putting a presentation together as I'm sitting in the back of this car, you know, this SUV on roads in Afghanistan, which are not great. <laughs> and, uh, you know, bouncing all over the backseat of this thing, trying to get this, this uh, presentation together. And... Uh, he was uh, so we get to the presidential grounds. We get dropped off. We have to walk to the to the to his the house. I wouldn't call it a palace, but they refer to it as a presidential palace. And uh, you know, there's a whole crowd of people there. He's meeting with uh, Gerhard Schroeder. Oh yeah, yeah. So we're standing there. There's a whole bunch of we're standing right at the bottom of the stairs. Three of us, and I'm I'm not saying this because he knew it was me. He didn't know it was me. He knew it was the other two guys I had been with who had been there for eight weeks and had been working with him quite constantly. But uh, I met him once before, so he kind of knew who I was. But he's walking in with Gerhard Schroeder and he looks up and he, and he sees the other two guys I'm with. And he goes, hey, hey, guys, um, I'll be with you in a couple of minutes. I just got to finish here. <laughs> so with Gerhard Schroeder standing yeah. right beside him, I'll be with you in a couple of minutes. I just got to finish with this dude. So it was it was it was pretty remarkable. And, and we went back and saw him the night we said things look good, you know, look pretty good. We think we're pretty confident in these numbers. So, you know, and I, I think there was no, there was no real competition. So that was the other thing. Right, right. Uh, there was a little competition, but the numbers were overwhelmingly going Karzai's way. So the large numbers, large proportions of people. So the division between Karzai and the other person worth was very small. So, um, so we were pretty confident, uh, but that was one of the things that came back to me as we were watching the news one night and uh, the uh, they're showing these Taliban guys walking through the reception area of the presidential palace. Yes. And I'm looking at I'm looking at the furniture. I'm saying I said to Sharon, I said, 
I sat on that couch. Wow, no kidding. Right Ooh. next to how he was sitting right next to me. And my laptop was on that table right there. Wow. It, was, it was surreal. Wow. It was that surreal to surreal. watch it. So. Wow. Holy cow. Well, listen, before we wrap up, because I think I'm running out of time here, but um, I'd like to get maybe, I know this is unfair, but it, it, to pinpoint one thing, but if, if you could, you know, to the leaders of the current situation there or whatever situation evolves there, um, from your, you know, soundings of public opinion over the years, is there any one or two things that you would point to, to leaders in Afghanistan to try to cement a bond with the population and create some kind of legitimacy long-term? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I really do think that they need to uh, uh, make sure that people know that they are listening to even the you know poorest farmer any, anywhere in Afghanistan. We're, we're listening for, we understand you got problems, you know, we understand what your problems are. We're trying to solve those problems and really actually going out and trying to make the lives of these people better. And I think education really is, it's the one thing that the Taliban won't do and that's, it's, and that's to increase education. Right. Um, you know, in, in most the, the, and this is a gross overgeneralization, but in, in most places that are um, Muslim countries, basically, uh, the Quran is an instruction book of what you can do and what you can't do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's uh, in, in many ways, the Bible is the same thing. Sure. Um, but there's no there's no interpretation of the Quran by average people. You and I can look at it and say, well, you know. Thou shalt not steal. But, you know, if I, you know, maybe the grape falls off the tree or something you know i'm in somebody's yard there's an apple there i mean you, we can rationalize very small things yeah. there isn't not that ability in in a, a great deal of muslim countries where the where the population is not well educated they don't have the ability to kind of rationalize certain things and again i mean small things not big things like you know but you know really the the you know murder is there's no rationalization for murder um but uh you know, to, to, to be a little bit more liberal in how they treat people, I think would be, would be good. And you can look at, you can look at places, you know, Tunisia and Egypt really offer some very interesting uh, differences in terms of, in terms of what happened when their uh, authoritarian power structures fell. So when Ben Ali fell in Tunisia, um, the natural reaction, and, and uh, when Mubarak fell in Egypt, the natural reaction was to go to the Muslim Brotherhood, because I told people this all the time, they are seen as the opposition party. So if you don't like what's going on, you have a general tendency to vote for the opposition, right? You don't like the current power structure, you're going to go with these guys over here who've been fighting the power structure. And they were really the only organized entity that was out there to do that. That's the same thing that happened with uh, with the fall of communism. Uh, in a lot of places, the first time they had a real legitimate election, the center right supplanted the center left or the leftist, however you want to put it. It's almost it was almost doctrinaire. You could see it. And yep. when they failed to do something, what happened? The center left came back in. Uh, you know, somewhat a little bit more mature in some places, some places unrepentantly still commies, but nonetheless, uh, they were able to come back in. Now, so. 
when these power structures fell in, in Egypt and Tunisia, the Muslim Brotherhood basically took over. They were in the first elections, Muslim Brotherhood won in Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood won in Tunisia. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood did not last very long in Egypt before right. they were supplanted. And Sisi came in and said, you're out, I'm in. They didn't last that long in Tunisia either, but it was a voluntary resignation by the Muslim Brotherhood in Tunisia. Hmm. They realized they had the perception that they were not doing well. We're not really, you know, we, this is a lot more difficult than we thought it was going to be. Hmm. And so they basically resigned their government and had another government come in and take place. Now, that's the difference between a, a, a mature electorate, people who actually, you know, have an awareness of what the political structure is, and people who don't in Egypt because they were never allowed to. You know, you vote, you vote for this guy because he's an army guy and that's that's the way it is. So, you know, if if there can be and I don't really believe that this is going to happen with the Taliban just because of who they are and how conservative they are. Um, if, if there were one piece of advice I would give them is to is to kind of just ease off a little bit and, you know, Start educating your people. In the long run, it's going to benefit you um, and your and your movement. Mm -hmm. You know, because you know people will only they'll only take being suppressed for so long before they before they before they act. And again, that's one of always one of my favorites. I can't remember who said this. I'm always at a loss as to whether it was Marx uh, or Trotsky or Lenin. Who said, you know, the problem with revolution is there's always a counter-revolution. Yeah. And you can see that in a lot of places. And so evolution is always much better than revolution. Right. And I think that was one of the problems that we had in, in Afghanistan is that this was not an evolution. It was a, it was a revolution type of, of entity. And so this counter-revolution uh, um, really came back with, the, with a vengeance. Boy, this has been uh, this has been a terrific discussion, Dave. Um, even better than I expected. <laughs> very much. Uh, fortunately, it's all the time we have. Um, but I'd like to thank our terrific, outstanding guest, Dave Williams of Williams and Associates. Um, thanks very much, and I hope you've out there listening or watching have enjoyed our discussion. And we hope you'll join us for our next episode, which is going to have a really hard time surpassing this one i can tell you that so see you then this is ernie pikopoulos with quality research so long cheers